You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We are in our series uh, called The Heart of Christ. And uh, I promise it wasn't uh, intentional that on Valentine's Day, our sermon title would be Christ's Heart for Sinners. (laughs) Um, I promise that wasn't intentional. I'm not trying to say anything here, but this is a a great series where we are looking at not just what Jesus has done for us, but actually what his, his, uh, the core of who he is and what motivates him and looking at the heart of Christ. And we can't know what Jesus is like unless he reveals himself to us. And so we see in Scripture him revealing himself to us in many ways. We're going to be in John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. Follow along with me, if you will. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is God's word. As a reminder, we are looking at this series and referring to the heart of Christ, and not just referring to his emotions and what he feels but rather his motivations that describes like what directs him to do what he does. To do something from your heart, when you ever ask somebody, would do it with all of your heart, right? It's to, to direct everything in your being, not just your emotions, but everything in who you are, all your energy and your attention and your passion towards something. Jesus reveals his heart to us. He reveals ultimately what drives him is to glorify his Father. And in many diverse ways, Jesus lives out this calling. He reveals his heart to us. He reveals his most natural instincts. And today we look at how his most natural instinct is to love sinners. The heart of Christ is for sinners. And this is important because uh, the context of this, Jesus has gathered the crowds He has fed the multitudes. Uh, He's performed this miracle where he's taken the two fish and five loaves and fed close to probably 20,000 people. And there is this anxiety that Jesus is anticipating in their hearts. Will they be driven away by God? And as they come close, can they have confidence that God will receive them and they can have belonging with him? And anticipating this anxiety in their hearts Jesus tells them, all who come to me will not be driven away. They will never be cast out. I will not cast out any person who comes to me. What comfort that must have given to the people listening. Dane Ortland and Gentle and Lowly, the book that we've been reading along, uh, reading through along with this series, he helps us to consider this very anxiety that, that maybe you feel at times as well. In this quote from his book, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. Have you ever felt that? Be honest with yourself. Have you ever felt that 
I wonder if Jesus will ever get tired of me. We use that expression, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. The other shoe to drop, it's, a, it's just this saying that means I'm waiting for the inevitable to happen. Imagine you see someone at the end of the day kind of lean on their bed to take their shoes off, and they take one shoe off, drop it on the floor, and then they get into bed and cover themselves up. And you're like, that other shoe has got to come off eventually. I'm waiting for that other one to drop. It's just you're waiting for the inevitable. And I know that God loves me. He, he cares for me. He sent his son to die for me, and he's poured out his love for me. But will he ever get tired of me? Will he get bored of me? When will I do enough to just drive him away? This text is for you if you have ever felt that way. Because he says he will never drive us away. Now, we have a couple types of people in this room, I imagine. Those who live with this anxiety in the back of their minds that God will eventually get tired of me. God may get fed up with me one day, but I'm not going to think about it right now. I'm just going to keep going forward and do the best that I can. And maybe, maybe uh, he won't get tired of me. Maybe he'll show some compassion and just continue to walk with me. There are other kinds of people are those who intellectually know that God will never give up on you. You can point to several passages in Scripture. You can point to certain convictions in your heart that you know that you are in Christ and he will never cast you out. But translating that knowledge and that head knowledge and that confession into a life that is lived in comfort, contentment, and peace, security, and an emotion, uh, emotional experience through life that follows your intellectual confession that you know you're secure in his love and nothing can take you away from that, well, that's a whole different story now, isn't it? So Jesus calls our attention to three separate images in our passage to describe his heart for sinners. It's almost like he's saying, let me tell you in three different ways to explain to you that all the Father who gives to me, all that come to me, I will never cast out and uses these three pictures, the three pictures of the meal, the wilderness, and the cross. Intellectual trademark on the title for that book, so no one take that, okay? The meal, the wilderness, and the cross. And together, these three pictures show us that we can have confidence in what Jesus says. The Word of God tells us something, and we can believe it because He tells it to us no matter what we are feeling inside, no matter what sins we commit. His heart for sinners. First, the meal. In the first line of our passage, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One of the beautiful aspects of this chapter in the Gospel of John is how he weaves deep theological truths within the context of a meal. In fact, the entire chapter, 6 and even 7, is just surrounded with this language of food. We are told all of this happened during the Passover feast. And so the Jewish people, the God's people, have come into the season of remembrance of their rescue from slavery in Egypt. And they are to engage in this yearly feast, this yearly celebration and ritual around a meal. And... There is this miraculous feast by the, um, by the 
by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus multiplies these five loaves of bread and two fish to feed uh, probably up to 20,000 people, including women and children. And then Jesus now refers to himself as the bread of life. It's all about eating. Some people, understandably thinking Jesus' words in a, in a literal sense, they ask him, sounds great, where is this bread so we can eat it and never die? And Jesus says, it's me. I'm the bread. My blood is the drink. Eat my flesh and drink my food, my, my blood, and you will have eternal life. Great dinner party conversation, isn't it? <laughs> to which most of them say, who can take this teaching? And they leave. They just depart. We will get more out of this understanding. We'll get, we'll get more to this imagery if we can understand and appreciate the role of food and the role of meals in the culture of this day. Being welcomed to a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremonially rich activity. It was symbolic of friendship and acceptance and intimacy and unity. It was a symbolic of belonging to another person. That's why, for the most part, the religious leaders were so upset about how Jesus conducted himself around meals. And it wasn't because of what he was eating or how he was eating. It was because who he was eating with. It was the people on the, the guest list that infuriated the religious people. Look who you are connecting yourself with. Look who you are inviting in. Because to have a meal with someone is to connect with them in friendship, to receive them, to accept them. And he says, you're doing this with a bunch of sinners. They hated him for it. They were sinners and scandals. They were outcasts. Meals were the, the social barrier markers of society. There were the barrier markers say, who belongs with whom? Where are the groups? Well, just look at who's eating with another person. I mean, you know this in elementary school. When you're having lunch, who do you sit with? Oh, those are the friends here. These are the cliques. These are the groups. You got, you got these people over here. You got this kind of people over here because they're eating together. And knowing this, it makes Jesus' words, whoever comes to me, seem even more amazing. Who gets to be a part of Jesus' club? Who gets to be a part of his group? Who gets to be in his fellowship? Who gets to be his friend? Whoever comes. It's astounding. Whoever comes to me. What an amazing promise. What a welcoming invitation. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Clearly, Jesus is not speaking in a literal way, but Jesus is setting himself up as the one who alone can satisfy the kind of hunger and thirst that every single one of us has. It's a soul hunger. It's a deep, abiding soul hunger to be accepted, to be secure, to feel that we belong, to to know that we are significant, to know that our life matters. All of us have this soul hunger to say that feels like, does anyone care for me? We speak in food language too, don't we? Without knowing it a lot of times. Of the course of getting to know some of you and people throughout my, my days, I, I might ask, you know, do you like what you do? Do you like your job? Do you like your work? And 
And often they'll say, well, you know, it puts food on the table. Right? There's food again. <laughs> okay, not, not literal food, but yeah, literal food. Of course, it does mean literal food. Yes, it helps me feed my family, but, but there's something more to that phrase, isn't it? We're talking about that, that weariness that comes from needing to provide, the weariness of, that comes from having to satisfy the, uh, people that are in our life that we're responsible for, earning enough money to live, to eat, to, to recreate, to, to have a life that we can be satisfied by and proud of. It's exhausting. What that phrase says when someone says, well, it puts food on the table, what they're saying is it's exhausting because I, I work hard and that that gets all that I need for that day, and I put food on the table, and the next morning I wake up, and I got to do it all over again. And I have to do it because I have needs. There's a need there. There's that deep weariness. When you hear someone say that, of just, I'm just tired of doing the same thing over and over again, because I worked today, we ate, and what was left over is going to spoil, and we're going to wake up tomorrow and be hungry again, so off to work I go. It's tiring. You know, between fast food and Blue Apron and HelloFresh, and there's got to be more, right? HelloFresh, Blue Apron, any others? You know, they're predicting that in the next six years that the, the home kit industry will be over $20 billion industry. It's actually bigger than the whole entire golf industry. Gigantic. How... How much to say, we want to be satisfied. We have needs. We have to eat. And every single day, we have that need every day. But we're exhausted from having to do the work to get satisfied. And so we're finding ways to just get what we need by doing less work. And we're all tired. There is an ache also that fills our soul to be satisfied, to be comforted, to be loved and we're just tired of working for it. And Jesus is saying, come to me. You'll starve without me. We're tired of working. How empty life can seem when our labor is done simply so that we can just eat and do the same thing the next day over and over and over again. How empty can it seem and feel in our soul when we are just working and working to please God, to earn His acceptance, to feel His favor in our life, just to wake up the next day and do it all over again? And Jesus says, whoever comes, whoever comes, I'll satisfy you. You won't be hungry ever again. You will not thirst ever again. I will satisfy that deep ache in your heart once and for all. Without Jesus, we'll starve eternally, and he invites us to himself. We try to feed that hunger with many things, with people and institutions, with money, sex, and power, with uh, even religion and doctrine. We try to feed that, that, that spiritual ache in our soul to feel important. To put it another way, Jesus declared that religion won't do it, Church attendance won't do it. Good works in and of themselves won't do it. The only thing that will satisfy once and for all, and he says, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, will be satisfied. The only one who could satisfy us is Jesus. And he says, come and believe that I've come to give you this kind of satisfaction. 
As I've said before, who does he invite to himself? Whoever. Whoever. In this way, Jesus' Jesus' invitation is indiscriminate. What I mean is that it's without bias. Uh, He invites the the wrong sorts of people to join him. He invites the wrong sorts of people to find comfort in him. He invites everyone to his great feast of uh, grace, the worst and the best kinds of people, the highest and the lowest. I mean, he invites you. He even invites me. He invites us indiscriminately to find comfort and satisfaction in him. And those who always categorize people by good people and bad people hated Jesus because he did this. Wait a minute, why are those people invited? Do you know who they are? They're bad people. They're sinners. They're, they're outcasts. They are scandals. His gracious and beautiful invitation is, 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 is describes and set this stage for this imagery of a feast that satisfies. And then he goes into the wilderness, setting us up for the wilderness, this place of hunger. When Jesus says that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven, he is saying something that appears so egocentric, so arrogant, that people immediately walk away. You see, he's feeding them, and he says, "Come to whoever comes to me and believes in me, you'll never be hungry, you'll never be thirsty, and people are still kind of locked in. They're listening, and they're hearing. And then he says, I'm the, I am the bread of life who has come down from heaven, and they say, that's a, that's a, I think that's it for us. <laughs> Why? Well, just moments earlier, Jesus reminds the crowd that when God's people, hundreds of years before, were starving in the wilderness starving in the wilderness without food, God made the heavens open up and rain bread. And just like before, we're in a wilderness again. Jesus acknowledges that with them. Just like before, we are there again. You are weary, you are tired, you are starving. But this time, the bread that God gives is not a temporary satisfaction or a temporary rescue. The bread that he gives is an eternal rescue, and it's me. And just like before, as God rained down from heaven food that satisfied you, now he's done that with me. He is saying that he himself, Jesus Christ, is the one that God has sent, and that by feasting on him in our heart, by leaving in him, it will do to our souls what bread does to our bodies. We will live. We will be satisfied fully. You know, our life is this constant journey from this where we are to this future home of peace with God. And it's filled with pain, agony of soul, and weariness of heart. It's filled with guilt and regret. It's filled with sorrow. Nothing survives in the wilderness for very long. And this is what Jesus is wanting. He's wanting this imagery to really sink in for his hearers as he's talking about the days in the wilderness of God's people when they wandered for 40 years, needing God's provision, hungry, starving, and dying. And Jesus is saying, we are there now. And not a single one of us can hide in the wilderness from our hunger and thirst. Every one of us has a spiritual hunger. Every one of us, no matter how strong or 
enduring our character, everybody. Some people are just better at ignoring their hunger. We all have this deep hunger. Everything we eat will, will never satisfy us, whether it's acceptance or the affirmation of others or serenity or our career. It may satisfy for a moment, but we will starve in the wilderness. <clears throat> it would be something to say if Jesus came to say, you're hungry, I I have the bread of life. I have the bread of life. But he doesn't say I have the bread of life. He says I am the bread of life. To say I have the bread of life wouldn't have been too bad. People would say, oh great, well then show me the way. And Jesus said, I have it. I can tell you how to get it. I'll show you where to get it. And then he would give them some spiritual principles to follow so that they can be satisfied. But he doesn't say I have it. He says I am it. I am not just going to tell you principles to live by. I'm going to show you myself. When he says that, he's saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am what you're looking for. I'm not the guide to give you a way of life to follow. I'm not the guide to instruct you or the teacher to instruct you on a, on a code of morality. I am what satisfies you. I'm what you're looking for. I'm the only thing that can satisfy the ache in your spiritual belly. I want to slow down just for a bit and, and read um, 37 to 39 again. Drawing your attention to what Jesus says again here. Would you listen again with fresh, fresh ears? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, will never, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. The more I read this passage, the more it calms my nerves, it fills my heart with peace, reminds me of the security that we have in Christ that God the Father and God the Son come up with a master plan for the rescue of our Heavenly Father's beloved children. And they have this discussion from eternity past in heaven in their mutual love for one another and their love for, for us. They come up with this plan of rescuing us and a resolve that nothing, absolutely nothing, will get in the way of thwarting that plan. And once Jesus grabs onto us and rescues us, not a single thing will be able to, to snatch us from his love. And he will never cast us out from his presence. And Jesus, which was once hidden, this plan that was once hidden is now revealed. And Jesus is revealing this to the masses. And he's saying, look at this beautiful plan. I'll never cast you out. You'll never escape from my love. Nothing is going to get in the way. Nothing will stop him. And when he holds on to us, nothing will pry open his fingers around us. Think of this. Hollywood has picked up on this and has made a lot of money on this narrative 
of the, the, the child being kidnapped and the father pursuing the child and stopping at nothing until everyone's neck is broken, right? Commando. You know? Arnold Schwarzenegger, I got a few head nods. Doesn't get better than that. You know, Alyssa Milano, little young 12-year-old Alyssa Milano. Taken, right? Liam Neeson with a special set of skills. Nothing gets in the way of Liam Neeson. Ransom, Mel Gibson, Labyrinth. Now, I know that was a younger brother and a sister. Same idea, right? Kidnapped from his crib. The sister pursues him. Home Alone, kind (laughs) of. Nothing will stop. The child who has been taken. Nothing will stop God from rescuing his beloved. And when he grabs on to his children, he says, nothing will get me to let go. Does that calm you? I hope it does. All throughout Scripture, you see God calling to his people and inviting his people to come and find rescue and to find peace and to find acceptance and to find satisfaction. And they say, nah, we're good. We'll go somewhere else. We'll go over here. This looks good over here. And he continues to call to them even in the midst of their pain. He says, I am the one who loves you. I am your first love. I'll never give up on you. And they say, nah, I'm good. And he says, I'm the water that will satisfy your thirst. And they say, we'll drink out of these dirty buckets. We're good. All throughout the Bible, this is what God does. He invites them to a feast and they eat rotten and moldy food. And he says, then I'm going to come down there and get you myself. And that's exactly what he does. If you won't come to me, then I will come to you. Verse 37 is really the climax of our passage. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. If we could really fully understand uh, what is happening in that single verse, then we could put to rest all you know, theological de- battles that have divided churches and divided families and neighbors and people for, for, for generations, right? Well, what do we understand here? What does Jesus tell us? That all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. Jesus is speaking about those who would come to Christ who would respond to him, who would embrace him and trust in him and rest in him. And he speaks about how they are motivated to do such a thing. What would compel and motivate a person to do such a thing? And with these words, Jesus is making one thing very clear, that we come to Christ because the Father has worked in our affections and he has worked in our will to do so. That our coming to God and responding to him and looking to Christ and embracing him is ultimately in our heavenly Father's hands, not ours. And that person, Jesus holds on to forever. That when he looks at us and calls us to himself and we continually are faithless and say, no, I'm good, I'm going to go over here. And he says, well, then I'm going to come down and do it myself. He does that. 
And the deepest theological question that I can think of as a response to this, one of which I do not have an answer for, is the question, why me? Why, of all people, that God would look down from heaven and see the wickedness of the world, that he would look at me and say, well, then I am going to come down and get you myself. And the deepest question I could think of is, why me? Why you? Every day in, in the wilderness of this broken life, God redeems in my life what seems irredeemable. Every day he makes my weakness into avenues of his strength. Every day he makes my hopelessness a doorway to his care. Every day he takes my hard moments and brings about joy. Every day he stays near me and never gets tired of me. Every day he looks into my heart and sees the ugliness of my sin and he doesn't hesitate to extend grace and forgiveness. And every day he does the same thing for you. Every day, and still every day, I have thoughts in my heart that he doesn't care enough about me. And every day, he never casts me out. There is not a single day in your life where the grip of God gets any looser. There's not a single day a single attitude that causes his fingers to slightly loosen up. Not a single moment, not a single attitude, not a single behavior, not a single compromise can make his grip on you loosen up in the slightest. And still we say, what have you done for me lately? Whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. Why is that? Jesus tells us. Because that's the will of God. Because that's what makes him happy. (laughs) What makes God happy? Rescuing you. There is a certain kind of joy that fills the heart of God when one of his children repents of sin and turns to him. There's a certain joy that fills the heart of God when a sinner looks to his son Jesus and embraces him. There's nothing that makes him happier. That is what his pleasure is. That Jesus would not lose any who have been given into his hands In the final image of the heart of Christ for sinners, we learn exactly how Jesus was able to not lose any the Father has given into his hands. And that is through the cross, the image of the cross. We wrap up this sermon by looking at how frustrated and confused people are when Jesus talked about his body being bread and his blood being drink. And we would have to eat his body and drink his blood in order to have any part of relationship with him. Maybe that's confusing to you too. Then you're, you're like everybody else. How do we make sense of this strange, strange imagery? Well, thankfully, the Bible helps us out with 
with that in a very clear way. At the heart of the Bible story is another meal, and that meal is the last supper, the final meal that Jesus would have with his disciples before he goes to the cross and dies. And he takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup and says, this is my blood shed for you. Eat it and drink it. And by using this, these elements, what is Jesus saying? He is saying, I will give you the life that you were created to live. I will give you the life that God created you for. But th- two things have, have to happen first. I have to be broken and you have to take me. I have to be broken, and you have to eat me. You have to drink me. Jesus had to be broken on the cross. He had to hang there, and he had to die for our sins. He had to be beaten. He had to be rejected, and it had to be in the most painful, gruesome, alienating way possible, because that is what you and I deserved. Our sin deserves the wrath of God. He had to hang there. He had to be crucified. The Father had to turn his eyes from him. He had to be rejected because that is what we deserve. And so Jesus had to take our place and everything that we earned through our sin, Jesus had to receive as punishment on the cross. And so Jesus got it all. And so when Jesus is saying, my body is broken for you, he is saying this, I had to do all of this for you, and that had to happen first. I had to bleed to death. I had to bleed out. I had to take the full wrath of God. So he had to be broken so that we could live. And the second thing that needs to happen is we have to take him. How do we take him? Because that's really how so many people get so confused. We take him. First, we cannot take him if our hands are filled with our own righteousness. We cannot take hold of him when our hands are not empty of ourselves. We must admit that we have no righteousness of our own to merit God's acceptance. We must stop making excuses for how we are living as people that we're not supposed to be. And we must be convinced of our deep need for him. It's so uncomfortable to slow down and to really look into our heart and ask ourselves that most painful question, how am I really doing? How am I doing really? How am I doing? How how are you doing? Do you take time to slow down and actually ask yourself, how are you doing? God already knows. But to take him is actually to come to him and to say, these are the things I'm holding on to. I have a tendency to hold on to my self-righteousness. But here's the problem with self-righteousness. Heaven will not be filled with people that are good enough to get there. Heaven will not be filled with people that had enough of what it takes to get there. To truly grasp the gospel, we must not only be convinced of the bad that we do, but we must confess how helpless we are to satisfy God with all the good that we do. You see, if we only confess our sins, if we only confess the wrong things we do, right, the sins, the things that we think about when we think of sins, the the wrong, the attitudes, the actions, the impatience, the anger, we don't go far enough. 
we must also confess all of our attempts to get rid of our sins and to come and take hold of Christ by doing good things for him or for others. So we let go of our attempts to be right with God and we turn our eyes to Jesus. Christ has to be broken. We take hold of him. How do we take hold? Well, first we let go and then we look to him. Jesus says, all who come to me and believe in me. Jesus makes our guilt right through the cross. But how can we be made right? So he takes our guilt. But how do we be made right? Only through faith. Only through coming to him, believing in him, trusting in him. By faith in Jesus, our sins can be forgiven and we can be assured of the hope that awaits us. Not condemnation, but new life in God forever. Faith does not mean that we believe in Jesus and then simply try harder to do what he says. Saving faith is transferring our trust away from ourselves and resting in him. It is to say, now I am no longer the one in whom I trust to get acceptance and security and significance with God. It is not in me, but it's in Christ alone. It's his his righteousness, his perfection, his obedience to the Father, He is the reason that God holds tightly to me. Saving faith is transferring all of our trust from away from ourselves into Him. It means saying, God, accept me not because of what I have done, but because what Jesus has done. If I were to ask you if you stood before God and, I mean, in the unlikely event that you were to stand before Him today, in heaven. And he said, why should I let you into my heaven? And if the words out of your mouth or even the contemplation of your heart had anything to do with what you did while you were alive, you missed the point. You have missed the entire point of the whole gospel story. You've missed the whole Bible. But our utterance and our focus ought to be It's because of what Jesus did for me. It used to be because of what I trusted in. It used to be because of my record and my character. But I have seen how short that has has gotten, how how little that has gotten to me. Even our worst sins and our worst circumstances do not make us too far from the reach of God's grace. No matter how bad or corroded or superficial your relationship with God is right now, it can always be made right. You can always gaze deeper into Christ. You can always trust Him more. You can always open up your hands more of the things you're trusting in. You can always let go of your self-righteousness. You can always trust in Him more. Well, you don't understand. I don't need to understand. The invitation of Christ to you is to come to Him, to feast on Him. John Newton, the writer of the most covered song in the history of music, you know, Amazing Grace. No one has ever sung that song more than any other song. He says this on his deathbed. Although my memory is nearly gone, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. This is faith. A renouncing of everything that we are apt to call our own, 
and relying wholly upon his blood, his righteousness, his intercession, his work for us. Have you taken a close look at your life? Now take a close look at Jesus. See his invitation. See his call to you. See him crucified to you. He calls you to repentance. He calls you to rest. He calls you to faith. And you can give yourself completely to him because he has given himself completely to you. And all who come to him will never be cast away. What a great promise.